Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. There is no more significant issue than race in America. It confounded our founders. It flies in the face of the notion of American exceptionalism. It clouds our dealing with other nations in the world. And it's an underlying current throughout American political history, right up through this very moment. The Black Lives Matter movement, profound and successful as it is, is simply part of the arc of history trying to bend towards justice. It's impossible to understand any of this without understanding the work and the ideas of so many who have shaped the movement. And Malcolm X stands amidst that pantheon. Over the years, many have tried to understand Malcolm X and his politics, his philosophy, his evolution, and his influence on the civil rights movement. Certainly his speeches and autobiography are part of that canon. But to fully understand the man, we need less Payne's biography, The Dead Are Arising. Les Payne was a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist, a former editor of Newsday, a founder of the National Association of Black Journalists, and he wrote an award-winning syndicated column. Payne passed away in 2018, and the 30-year project of this book was completed by his daughter Tamara, who was also its co-author and principal researcher. The book recently published has garnered tremendous attention. It has been high atop the lists of dozens of the best books of 2020 and recently was the recipient of the National Book Award for Nonfiction for this year. It is my pleasure to welcome Tamara Payne to the program. Tamara, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. First of all, talk a little bit about the remarkable 30-year journey of this project before we dig in a little deeper. This was something that was really a life's project. It turned into that. Um, we didn't expect it to go on for so long, and um, and I also expected my dad to be here when it was finished. <laughs> so I know I'm laughing. It's a little sad for me still. Um but, you know, it, it, Dad really wanted to work on this book. He, well, first, let me just start with, originally, he admired Malcolm, but he didn't feel that we needed, he needed to write a biography on Malcolm X because he, didn't, he wasn't into writing about his views of what was already known as a reporter. He was a journalist. So he wanted, his interest was learning something that's new, and something that people would always say, it, we may never know. So he was always looking for the news story here. And what happened was he met Malcolm's brothers. He met one in, um, he first met one in, in Detroit through a friend of his, um, who was a surgeon, Walter Evans, and uh, interviewed him for eight hours, came back to New York, was just fascinated. Like he couldn't let it go, and he kept talking about it. And, um, he mentioned it to a colleague here in New York, uh, Gil Noble, who had his own show on WABC TV called Like It Is, and he also admired Malcolm and knew his brothers and said that he asked that, which brother did you meet? Did you talk to? And, and Dad said it was Philbert. He said, oh, the brother you should meet is Wilfred. So Dad said, okay, let me find out what Wilfred has to say. He goes back to Detroit, interviews, meets him, he's you know, open to talking, and he they talked for another eight hours. And Dad was just mesmerized by what he learned from these two brothers who were older than Malcolm. Silver was two years older. Wilfred, six years older. And what they told him about their childhood, their family life. And what Dad was feeling was that, you know, Malcolm has always been kind of presented to us, you know, fully grown, fully formed. 
you know, but we don't know where he came from, what his family was like, what his lineage is. And so he was processing that, and he just said, we really don't know this, and we, it helps us understand who this man is. He didn't just spring out of nowhere. Um, and, you know, and I often say he's, present, he's presented to us in a vacuum that's fully formed and angry, and, and this gives us a chance to see what, um, who Malcolm is as a person and that we've come to know and admire and, and that young people today are gravitating to because of how he analyzed what was going on in America and has gone unaddressed, really. Um, and, and they gravitate to him. And they, we also need to know how did Malcolm come to this, too. And so that's where we start. So Dad wanted to tell the story of who Malcolm was and the family life and, and how he grew up, but he also wanted to discuss... Um, the world that Malcolm was born into. The conventional wisdom has always been that so much of, of Malcolm's philosophy and, and politics and attitude really evolved while he was in prison. This really shines a whole nother light on what came before that. Talk a little bit about that. What we learn is that Malcolm's parents, Louise Langdon Norton, and his father, um, Earl Little Sr., um, they met in Montreal. And they, had, they were members of the Marcus Garvey organization, the Universal Negro Improvement Association. And they were members, and, and they were attracted to that, the work of Marcus Garvey and his organization. They were members, and they were attracted to each other. They ended up getting married and um, settled first in Philadelphia, and then they moved out to the Midwest. They went, moved first to Omaha, Nebraska. And... You know, and what they were doing out there is they were organizing for the organization, um, wanting to bring in um, members to the organization, help organize black families and build up their communities, build up their businesses, um, you know, and, and embracing themselves as black people in America. And in spite of all of the obstacles that were presented to them, um, this was also during the time, because we're talking in the 1920s, um, the Great Migration's in place. People are moving out from uh, leaving, you know, leaving the South, going up north for better jobs, um, but also faced with obstacles up wherever they landed, as did the little family. So they're building on this philosophy, and as they have children, they are raising their children in this, you know, in this environment, you know, of of Garvey's philosophy of thriving, and building your community and supporting Black businesses. Um, embracing who you are as black people. And what we find even in the household that Louise, who's more educated than um, Earl, um, she's teaching, she's working with her children on their schoolwork. Um, she's also imbuing them with the sense of who they are as black people. She, when they're complaining about how their classmates are making fun of them and calling them the N-word, you know, she's, She's telling them how to process that and how to deflect those insults but, and still remain, you know, being having your dignity as black people, embracing it, not turning the other cheek. Some people might see that as turning the other cheek when you don't respond um, to these insults. But what she's saying, you're coming from a different place and they don't they're not hitting their target because that's about the person who's throwing her hurling the insults and not you. And in other things, I mean, she's imbuing this in the children and she didn't like the term colored, and she, you know, she really talked about them being a black family. Um, and Earl, who's an organizer, um, he actually would take Malcolm to some of his meetings. 
and Malcolm we got to see Earl interact and and um, you know organize these meetings. And Earl's pretty much a he was an organizer and he was also organizing this family as far as assigning chores to the children because they had a farm and he organized a sharecropping type of situation with their, their neighbors um, when they were in Lansing. And, um, and so he was very much an organizer and assigning chores and um, in, interacting with people is very charismatic. And Malcolm got to witness that. And so this is kind of where the, it sets in with the children, all of Malcolm and his siblings, this sense of who they are as black people under the, um, uh, with Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey actually also visited their household. Wilfred had met Marcus Garvey when they were younger. Um, Malcolm did not, you know, he was, he wasn't, um, he was too young because by the time Malcolm came around, Marcus Garvey was, um, I believe in jail at that point. So, um, but, you know, needless to say, they were still organizing and, and moving around a bit. So that's really what their childhood was, was really based on. So even, so Malcolm, in my view, when we're doing our work on this and researching, what we're finding is that it's not, this Marcus Garvey is, follows Malcolm and his family, you know, throughout his life and their lives. Um, when we find out even with the Nation of Islam, it's Wilfred who joins the Nation of Islam first in Detroit, and he joins it because, you know, he's, he's working, but he's also looking for other things to do with his community. He looks at the UNIA organization that's there, you know, and this is years later, um, and, and they're not really doing anything. And then he hears about this group called the Nation of Islam. And he goes to their meetings, and wasn't, he wasn't into the religious side of it, but what he was attracted to was the, the community-building side of it. And he said it, it resonated with him. It was, it, was what the, it was what he was used to. He grew up with this philosophy. It was also Garveyism. So Garveyism is following, um, following it's a flow-through line in, in most of these groups, too, these black groups that are forming, which are giving black people that space to create and build their own communities. And, and it's really the Garvey um, philosophy that is in all of these, Moorish Science Temple, as well as the Nation of Islam, for example. Talk a little bit about where, what you and, and your dad discovered and, and the research, where it diverges from the autobiography. Well, we have to understand why the autobiography was being written. And also, the whole idea of an autobiography. First, the autobi- an autobiography is really a person is telling the story that they want people to know about them. And then, what in the case of Malcolm, he was originally doing this autobiography as a kind of like PR piece for the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad's teachings. And, but during the process of this, he splits with Elijah Muhammad and the Nation. And so he and Alex Haley, who actually was, Alex Haley really wasn't interested in doing the Nation of Islam story, but he was pushing Malcolm to do um, his own story. He said Malcolm's story was really interesting and far more interesting than Elijah Muhammad, and and that's the story he wanted, and he was pushing Malcolm in that direction. So he kind of went out in in that sense. And... You know, and, and he really pushes. Now, I, one of the things I did was I would go to, I had gone to the Schomburg and I had the opportunity to go through some of the unpublished chapters and, manus- and the early versions of chapters of this manuscript for the autobiography. And I could see the notes, you know, where, you know, 
how Alex Haley is really pushing Malcolm to talk more about his own family. And it's, and Malcolm is reluctant, but he works hard to do that. And, but again, it's, he's not very revealing about, you know, what his family relationships were like. He mentions things in passing. He doesn't go a lot into, for example, what it was like after his father had died and, and really the details, like he doesn't talk about how he, you know, he talks about skipping school, but he didn't talk about, for example, that he was selling pot, you know, but that's one of the things that he was doing. Um, he was 12 years old and he was just kind of getting lost and misdirected. Um, and other ways that, you know, he diverges, how he would talk about how he didn't know how to write. His mother was very strict on grammar. And that was one of the things that the brothers would say. It's like my mother was hammer grammar in the And even when you look at the letters that Malcolm would write to his friends when he was living in Boston, you know, his, his hand, not just his handwriting, but his sentence structures. You know, we quote from some of those letters in the book. You know, he could write. He knew he knew a subject and a verb and how to make them agree and and even paint a, give us an image or two. You know, and and so there are these these things about what Malcolm kind of want to portray about himself and and his his journey, and then what we were finding to be the actual um, journey from the views of people who knew him, not just his family but his friends, people he grew up with, his classmates. Um, his friends that he made in Boston and in New York, and even people in jail and people who worked with him in, in the Nation of Islam and how they described him. Talk a little bit about some of the other material that really was, was dramatically new, some of the news that, that comes out of the research and the work that you all have done, stories that really heretofore had not been known about Malcolm. Well, I personally like the story of how Malcolm organized Hartford, the Hartford Temple. And it's kind of personal, too, both for my father and myself, because my father grew up in Hartford at age 12. He was born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama in 1941, but his family moved to Hartford and, um, when he was 12 years old. So dad grew up in Hartford, also went to school at the University of Connecticut stores, and he knew Hartford. So when he found out, when we found out that, um, Malcolm had organized that temple. Um, Dad said, "Wow, this is great. Let me let me figure. Let me see what what this is about." Because it turned out that he knew some of the families that he didn't know of their lives of, in the temple growing up, or when he had lived in Hartford. But he um, knew of these families, like he knew their names, and um, and other family members of our family, you know, knew them. So he got, it was a great opportunity for us to learn about for him to write about Hartford, a city that he knew, but also to write about Malcolm, who in Hartford, um, that temple, of course, you can't, Malcolm's not the uh, leader of the movement. It's Elijah Muhammad. He had Elijah Muhammad's permission to organize this temple and set it up. Um, but it was kind of a way, it was off the beaten track in the sense that it wasn't in Boston. It was away from Detroit and Chicago. Um, and it wasn't in New York, and it was kind of off the beaten track, and it was kind of Malcolm himself really worked with these families who wanted to set up this temple and organize it, and just really getting their stories of why they moved to Hartford, for example, how they arrived, and then what life was like for them, and then what, 
what it was like working with Malcolm, bringing him in. Why did they? Why they chose Malcolm, for example, Rosalie Glover, um, who's um, we didn't speak to her because she had passed away, but we spoke to her namesake daughter, and she talked about because she was at the first meetings and. Um, she talked about what Mal- what it was like at that first meeting. And these are stories we hadn't heard. Like Malcolm mentioned, you know, Hartford, you know, in passing, and that's it. Um, but here we fleshed it out because we really got that could saw it as a way to talk about the side of Malcolm that we don't really get to see because Malcolm was always under the strictures, the, uh, strictures of uh, the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad. Now, when he splits and he's trying to set up his own organization and we're wondering what he would be like as a leader, we kind of get a more of a sense that this is kind of what he would be like because he was he was kind of on his own. Like Elijah Muhammad would just he would check in with Elijah, he would send in his letters to uh, update, you know, Elijah Muhammad on what his, what was happening and, um, and make sure he got permission that he was OK with what the actions he was taking. But it wasn't a lot of interference from him. And also the title of the book really comes from that chapter, too, because um, the dead are arising. The dead was how people in the nation of Islam would refer to people outside of the nation. And when you uh, join the nation, then, you know, you, it meant that you were embracing consciousness. You were becoming conscious. You were embracing Elijah Muhammad's teachings and, and embracing your true self as a black person in America. And so when Malcolm would write to Elijah Muhammad about how – the work was going on in Hartford, he would write sometimes, and he wrote in, in particularly in a letter um, to Elijah about Muhammad about uh, Hartford that they were having frustrations and, you know, um, obstacles in dealing in organizing Hartford. However, he said they were making movement and that the dead there were are rising. So that that's where that title comes from. What was it that, that, drew your dad so much to Malcolm, his life, his work, his ideas, uh, to, to commit 30 years to a project like this, there has to be a pretty powerful draw. Well, Mal- my father followed Malcolm. He was an admirer of Malcolm. He you know, first came across Malcolm really, as he told me, was um, he saw The Hate That Hate Produced in 1959, um, which is a CBS documentary um, that they did on, on the Nation of Islam. And, you know, and, and Malcolm was traveling and dad would hear them. And we're talking, this is in the 1960s, where, um, you know, my dad's in high school and going into college. And this it's a hot time, you know, and the civil rights movement is in, is in full swing. And, you know, and, and the disparity between blacks and whites in this country is huge. And, and um, you know, and, and, and how do we overcome these things? So. You have Martin Luther King, the civil rights leaders, and, you know, and, and Dad found things that he followed with that, and that was good. But what he liked about Malcolm was that Malcolm had this thing about, you know, standing firm in who we are. Don't apologize for being black. Don't apologize for taking action. Don't apologize for standing up for your rights. Um, you know, and he wasn't about turning, Malcolm wasn't about turning the other cheek. Dad didn't like this turn the other cheek um, uh, action, you know, but... The analysis is also what, you know, and, and Dad said that that analysis, you know, you can use that even today, which is why youth, youth, the youth keep turning to them, and not just in America, all over the world. Oppress the youth, wherever they are in the, in the world. 
you know, if they have their hands on Malcolm or they know about Malcolm, they tend to grab, gravitate towards him. And, um, and it's because the way he describes what oppression is in this country. And it's, it's not different from other places in the world, we find out. But Malcolm was focused on this country because this is where he was and this is what he saw. And he, his whole thing was really focusing also on dealing with um, what we call the false sense of inferiority um, of black people. But let's also understand, and I, and I like this, this quote, and it, I've heard it first from Martin Luther King, but Malcolm has also said it, that segregation provides the segregator, it imbues them with a false sense of superiority. So here we go with the white supremacy. And it imbues, and it gives the, the oppressed and the segregated the false sense of inferiority. So in this case, black people. And this oppression, whether it's in, whether it's in Iran, whether it's in you know, Israel, wherever it is, it's, it's these, when people are oppressed and they hear this, they, they gravitate to that analysis of, of how, the, how do you deal with oppression and the effects of it. And so, and that's, that was what was attractive. Talk about what you discovered about Malcolm's, more than a flirtation, but, but his period that he was really focused on the idea of black separatism. Um, Malcolm really, that was really the nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad. And Malcolm, you know, while, in, especially in the beginning when he first joined the nation of Islam, he's coming out of jail and this is where he pivots into because his family is there and, and they provide him um, you know, with a platform to to use his um, newly acquired skills for um, uh, understanding history and analyzing, speaking to people and and debating, and so it, it's this thing. So, and this is part of the philosophy of the Nation of Islam. So, this black separatism really comes under the Nation of Islam, and you know, and Malcolm, you know, what he feels is that. You know, he want what he, the reason why he's separated. He ends up separating from the nation is that he really doesn't agree with that separatism. You know, when when issues happen against um, you know black people, he wants us to be able to stand up. And Elijah Muhammad keeps holding him back and saying no. You know, like when um, for we can talk about, for example, the Klan thing when he, he gets the message that the Klan wants to meet with their with the Nation of Islam. He happens to be in Georgia preaching and they get this telegram. Malcolm, you know, he wants to have a confrontation and a face off with the Klan. But they have to go to Elijah Muhammad and present it to him and find out what Elijah Muhammad wants to do. Elijah Muhammad says, Let's see what we can do. I want to set up a separate state. In order to do that, I want to buy I need to buy land. Perhaps he's, you know, the Klan can help us. And and Malcolm's not okay with this. He feels that this is an unholy alliance. And so he sees the limitation of that. And, and that just keeps um, growing. And, and, he, you know, and he wants to have more of a say with what's happening in the country, in the, in the civil rights movement, even though he's not for integration, as he, was, as he was saying. But what he wanted was for, he was focusing, keep in mind, on dealing with the false sense of inferiority that black people had internalized. So in order to do that, you know, you have to deal with yourself and embrace who you are as you are and accept yourself. And, and until you do that, then you can talk about, you know, integrating with everybody else. So he was really kind of focusing on that. And 
Um, but he wasn't against um, dealing with because as you see when he travels, he's still fighting for the black cause. He's taken to the international level and, to, and he wants to bring, make it a human rights fight. Um, but his, he's also learning about what's happening in the world and people are identifying and saying that they agree and, and they really support his, his movements and his fight. Um, and they're not black people, so he's listening to that, but he's also very cautious about, you know, what everybody's agendas are. But it's it's about, he's still learning about that. So, again, I, I don't think that Malcolm was all the way there about this being a separate state. I think he grew away from that pretty quickly because he wanted he wanted to be able to, you know, mix it up more with, with Martin Luther King and them. And he can't do that um, if they're just preaching separation. And what what was new? What did you discover in in the course of the research on this about his assassination and and what really led up to it? Some of the things that we didn't fully understand at the time. I mean, I think what's great about time is that more information was released, for, particularly from the FBI files. Um, the New York Bossy files also were also let um, released, but there are still a lot of files that we don't have access to. I wouldn't say everything has been released on that. But getting that information released and having it even more accessible where you can just look on the internet now, um, whereas before you actually would have to travel to Washington, D.C. to look at, in, look at the files, um, it's important to get that kind of information. And it was not available before. And then also talking with people who were there on the scene, particularly when you're talking with Gene Roberts, who was working for the um, Bureau of Special Services um, as, a, as an informant against, you know, Malcolm X. And he's reporting to them, you know, of the goings on. And then he's also telling us, you know, I'm reporting to that this, you know, that there's going to be a hit. And then their response is to decrease police presence. And he was, you know, he was surprised by that. I mean, he knew that they were against him, but he he just he he didn't like that he didn't feel good about that um but you know he he was doing his job and then when you also find out how the involvement of the FBI and not only just in the assassination but how you know Hoover had infiltrated and used his his tactics to um sow dissension and using disinformation. And he did that not just with Malcolm X, but he did that with um, Martin Luther King. He also did it with the Ku Klux Klan, with whatever group he found to be, you know, what he considered a threat to American society. And so, you know, these things and these tactics are still being used today. And and so when you find out and you're learning about that, these, these things are, you know, and it's not just... Enough to say that the FBI was involved, but you want to know how were they involved? How were they able to do that? And you kind of learning about how they how they did that, you know, by sending in an informant, by having using electronic surveillance, listening to their phone calls, and then when people realize that they're being surveilled, but then and how that sows and 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 puts people in a, in a heightened state of anxiety and create and it creates in a heightened state for not just individuals but the group. Tamara Payne, the book is The Dead or Arising, The Life of Malcolm X. Tamara, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. 
Thank you so much for having me, inviting me on. Thank you.